Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the House of Pod. My name is Kave. I am the uh, host of this fun little humor adjacent medical podcast. I think probably the only medical uh, podcast ever in the history of the internet. Don't check that. Um, Today, we're going to learn about how to read and interpret studies. And we're going to talk a little bit about scientific research and what makes one good, what makes one bad, how it's misused. We're going to talk about why that's important, if it's not obvious. Joining me to do that. Oh, God. This is going to be a fun show. I'm so excited. I expect it to go off the rails within the first five minutes. And if it doesn't, <laughs> I will be very pleasantly surprised. Let me introduce a couple of people that are going to be joining me. First, we'll start with Dr. Bobby Davari. Bobby, buddy, how are you? I'm doing great. Glad are to be you here. doing it? Yeah, are you? Yeah, I'm so excited. Are you comfortable? Here. Are you relaxed? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of fanboying right now over talking to an epidemiologist. You know, like yeah, I know. Of, you know, they're just. You think excited. he's kidding, but he actually is like kind of into oh, yeah. this. That's why I had to bring sure. him on. He was like, does get off on this a little bit. Are you going to sure. be like That's great? Epidemiologists are now actually a category of person that people recognize. Prior yeah. to the pandemic, usually not, you'd yeah. introduce yourself as an epidemiologist and people would be like, oh, yeah, skin doctor. <laughs> <laughs> just, just that one layer. That's the only one you do. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, yeah, because yeah. the epidermis <laughs> is skin. Yeah. Right, that's it. Um, mm-hmm. Bobby, uh, I'm glad you're here, buddy. Um, Bobby's been on the show before, but uh, I have more than than Bobby joining me. We also have Will Poole. You may know him on the internet as Christy Yamaguchi Main. Will, how are you, buddy? I'm great. I'm great. A little sleepy. It's it's late. I'm on the east coast of the United States, so I'm I'm mm. staying up past my bedtime to uh, get to talk to, uh, uh, you, like you said, skin you, you're, you're a skin doctor, and you're now a re- like a fully recognized class of person because so many people hate you now. Uh, so many people hate this class of person uh, thanks to the past few years. I think I think you're like just as famous as. Uh, uh, this this group of of uh, healthcare workers are you're just as much infamous with a whole sector yeah. of our political spectrum over here. So yeah. I am thrilled. I've never spoken to an epidemiologist in person before. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, we'll uh, probably try you and you know in a court of law eventually if uh, half of our political candidates ever uh, you know uh, win yeah. and and on their platforms and stuff. I'm, I'm Stoked. Well, 
I I have actually have the dubious honor of having been personally, well, not by name, I don't think, but personally attacked by RFK Jr. in his book. What? Holy so, shit. Wow. This is awesome. Oh, me, I guess. Man. Well, well let, okay. let's, let's tell people who you are because they've been hearing you talk for a little bit. Joining us today, we have Gideon Meyerowitz Katz, soon to be PhD epidemiologist from the University of Wollongong and a writer of a Substack. I mean, do I say a Substack writer? I'm not sure how to introduce that, but you do have a great Substack and uh, you have been very active online and you give lectures and you talk a lot about studies, research, what makes one good, what makes one bad. You talk about what's happening in the news and you help people to understand it and dissect it. And I think it's a super important thing. So I'm very happy you're here to join us today. Thank you for coming. Ah, it's my pleasure. And as Will said, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people just hate you at this point, just based <laughs> on your your title. But I hope by the end of this episode, they hate you for you, not just for your title. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because, as I said, a lot of people didn't know what an epidemiologist was before the pandemic. And now most people assume that uh they're evil well if you support certain political parties you think they're evil if you support certain political parties you think they're good at least in the united states i think in australia there's no strong political uh, no. angle to science fortunately so lucky <laughs> yeah we, the, the major political parties the two major political parties here are pretty much on the same page when it comes to public health measures and then you've got the really fringe extremists who everyone ignores Okay, so first start by telling us a little bit about what an epidemiologist is, for those of us who don't know. And then let's talk a little bit about why it's become sort of a political thing here in the United States, at least. I mean, epidemiology is just the study of human disease at population scale. So um, as opposed to, you know, like medicine, which is the study of how individual bodies work and the minutiae of physiology which i is completely beyond me um because I, di I did a psychology degree and then i did a master's of public health so i never never did any of the uh kind of in-depth stuff of individual humans but then epidemiology is just diseases across the population so where but before the pandemic all all epidemiologists that i know i've got pulled into the pandemic to some degree and i was pulled in to a great degree but before the pandemic most of my work was in diabetes research and identifying population level trends in uh, type 2 diabetes. And that's a pretty standard epidemiological thing to do. Well, then what, what's happened here um, that's caused the, the field of epidemiology to be so demonized, at least by uh, some portion of our country? I think basically the issue is that epidemiology is very involved with the spread of human disease. And in a pandemic, the epidemiologists are basically the experts in what's happening. And so a lot of the scientific decision or a lot of the political decisions were backed up with scientific studies produced by epidemiologists. And a lot of the people who were talking on television about the pandemic because they were the experts in the matter, were epidemiologists. And I think a lot of people, particularly in, in the United States, who didn't like the way their politicians dealt with the pandemic, um, prefer to blame the scientists who were uh, talking about the realities as they saw them. I think that part of the challenge is that, like, science... Um, that, that politics and science are essentially different because politics, you're trying to balance what people want to happen and science you're you're just saying this is kind of what will happen this this is what is happening and this is what we would predict to happen if we followed these various scenarios and sometimes you don't really care about the outcomes what you really care about is what people are telling you to do and that's politics right mm -hmm. whereas so then i i think that 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 disconnect is partly why people don't like epidemiologists right now mm -hmm. or some people don't like epidemiologists we like you you seem fine. It's nice to be liked. As of now, we <laughs> but, like you. Yeah. By yeah. the end, well, of a lot of people online us. really, <laughs> a lot of people online really hate me. So that's fine. I, I, I don't need to be liked anymore. <laughs> every time, uh, every time I join one of these episodes, it's someone who like has, just like the internet has a, a 
hateful rage boner for uh cave you 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 have like such a, a cast of people that like which which again which is just kind of like the climate in america right now it's like if you are coming from the healthcare field and not uh uh saying exactly what uh, you know people want to hear then you're just you're demonized to some degree but uh whether it's talking about fentanyl exposure and uh all of the myths and bullshit surrounding by that or gwyneth paltrow's uh, you know, grifting ass, or now yeah. epidemiology. It's uh, it's always someone who's uh, who's hated by a large portion of the internet. Kave. The previous episodes that you've been on, that was Ryan Marino and Jen Gunter. <laughs> yeah, Actually, pretty close. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan Marino for sure. It was about Florida's uh, decision to to teach what they're teaching and like right. the don't say gay bill and stuff. So, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, um, I, speaking of Florida, I have a Florida question for you, actually. I, I know nothing about Florida specifically. Um, Lots of alligators, is, I think. No, no, you will enjoy this. There's, um, I'm just curious because there's a new movement now called medical freedom, um, in and it's really the epicenter is Florida, where they have hired uh, doctors that are um, that you know are fired from their organizations for refusing to get vaccinated and so on, <laughs> and. Uh, who uh, want to prescribe ivermectin, and uh, they've started uh, their own their own healthcare system there based on al- alternative facts. So um, I-, I wonder if anything like that's happening in in your uh, in your country, and what your thoughts are on that. What, first of all, where what is the Florida of Australia? Yeah, what is the Florida? Is it Brisbane? <laughs> I'm just guessing. We really have we don't have New a Zealand Florida. Because... New nah, New Zealand's. <laughs> Pretty good. New we, don't, we don't have we don't have a Florida exactly because there's no like state that is. Uh, you can say it; it's that. fine. I have like three. But like, okay, Florida. where where do most of the bogans live? <laughs> nice. <laughs> ah, some great Australian terminology there. <laughs> I mean, it, rural areas. Bogan and redneck are similar terms. I sure, would say. For sure. Mm. Yeah, if you're gonna go for an American counterpart, and I can but I like, can say that term because I am one, uh, proudly have been my entire <laughs> life. Come from a long lineage of them, Rednecks, uh, down here, bogus. down here in North Carolina. I, I live in you know southeastern United States, so yeah, uh, yeah I was excited to learn the term bogan. <laughs> uh, well, that's that's lovely. <laughs> now, Australia, the, the thing is, there aren't the states aren't as different from each other as in America. I would say is kind gotcha. of the thing. But like Queensland is kind of the Florida of Australia in a way, but Brisbane and Sydney are very similar cities and 90%, not 90%, I think it's about 60% of Australians live in the state capitals of each state, which is very different to America. Yeah, so like sure. Brisbane is 2.2 million people, I want to say. And I think Queensland has about four and a half million people total. So then, oh, wow. So, but speaking yeah. of the this medical freedom thing, which is you know hilarious and <laughs> disturbing and terrifying, so but th- what I find interesting is that it they're still coming back to ivermectin. This is the thing I yeah. don't understand. Why does ivermectin still keep coming up? What is it about this drug that people love so much? I mean, tell me, am I what? What is the? Let's just start with the data on it. Is it useful at yeah, all yeah. for treating COVID? So ivermectin is the reason, one of the reasons why a lot of people online hate me, actually. Um, So kind of an interesting story with ivermectin. What happened was in 2020, there was a fraudulent study that was later withdrawn that showed this huge benefit to ivermectin. Um, This was well before most people remember, but it was in June 2020, if you remember the Surgisphere scandal. Um, Surgisphere, they had a couple of papers in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet saying that hydroxychloroquine was bad Mm. and didn't help. But they also had a preprint that was under consideration with the Lancet when all of the big scandal happened, where they said that ivermectin was good. And that preprint caused a number of countries in Latin America and in other places in the world to adopt ivermectin as a treatment pretty much overnight because it's super cheap, super available in these countries, and it's relatively harmless as drugs go. And that caused a lot of people around the world to just start using ivermectin. And when that study was retracted because it was just a complete fabrication, I mean, the ball had already started rolling. And then what happened was later in 2020, a series of papers, randomized trials came out. 
And these RCTs appeared to show huge benefits for ivermectin. And that kind of got a lot of people very excited. And this is kind of when Pierre Corey was saying in the US Congress that ivermectin is a miracle drug. You know, there was that really famous viral clip of him saying that it, it 90% reduction in, in death when using ivermectin. That came from this series of studies. And in 2021, myself, along with a group of colleagues um, who are, you know, we're, we're all researchers, but unaffiliated uh, error checkers. I, I think we were referred to as scientific sleuths in a couple of things, but basically we're just random people who have for one reason or another got into error checking in science. We found that a large number of these ivermectin papers were fabricated, so they didn't happen. And about five or six of them have since been retracted um, after the authors either didn't have data or the data came back and it was clearly fraudulent. In one case, they had copy-pasted the same 11 patients over and over again in a data set um, and just manipulated the columns, the, the cells, to show a, a benefit for ivermectin. Uh, they later said um, public, their public comment was that it was an accidental work of fraud by a medical student. They created a fake oh, data set to train a medical student. Oh, they blamed the yeah, med yeah. student. The most and then, oh, the, story, this the fake oldest story in medicine. <laughs> blamed the medical yeah, this, student. This fake data set that they created for the medical student or by the medical student, accidentally they just submit, submitted this to the journal and never corrected that. What the hell? That's not that the story. Will. Just so you know, Will, that's not normal. That is, it's not normal? No, it's not. It's not <laughs> okay. Hopefully. So, okay. So here's, here's the question that, that I'm left with. Who stood to benefit from this oh. fake study? So that's not even the whole story. Okay. So all right, all right. wait, let me just finish the story first. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. My so bad. Then, my bad. So then we found that these fake studies, if you removed the fake studies from the literature, what you found was that ivermectin had a plausible benefit, but it was very small and not. it was consistent with no benefit. And then in 2021, people took this really seriously, right? They took this drug, this ivermectin, really seriously. And so a group of independent researchers started running massive randomized trials funded largely by philanthropic efforts and governments uh, because pharmaceutical companies not super interested in off-patent drugs. So instead, they went to other funders and they got these funded through philanthropic efforts. Um, and what they found was that ivermectin generally doesn't have a benefit in the treatment of COVID-19 and is unlikely to have a benefit in the prevention of COVID-19. So these are huge, uh, diverse studies run by independent researchers with funders who are either charitable organizations, governments, or similar NGOs. Um, and so the end result is that we now know that ivermectin is unlikely to have any benefit in the treatment of COVID-19 or the prevention of COVID-19. That's pretty much where the evidence um, is. But to answer your question, it's hard to say why people commit fraud, and I still cannot tell you exactly. But generally speaking, I think the main reason that people do academic fraud is just that they... Um, it's a career boost. That seems like the most likely explanation for me. You get this study mm -hmm. and this study goes across the world. You get a big international reputation and suddenly you get more money, more funding, uh, more people interested in working with you. Gotcha. I mean, think about what we're doing. We're talking about this one bullshit study still from 2020 and we're not talking so much about like the three or four that have come since disproving it, you know? I mean, those aren't household names. We don't know who those people were like, that those are the ones that are those iconoclastic right that people all these researchers want to be the person to put out that paper that that goes against the paradox but um, it's it's like such a i mean I, I know i'm trying to apply logic to an illogical action but like i still know wakefield's name from the <laughs> autism yeah. study on vaccines and like in a negative way like he will never live that down i know i uh, you know as i'm saying that he's still held up in certain circles as like a hero uh you know in in anti vax mm -hmm. circles but it's like you got to you know that they're going to try to replicate something as miraculous as ivermectin being a cure for covid-19. Yeah. And like what do they think is going to happen? Has anybody ever I I know I know studies like slip by sometimes, but does anybody ever not get caught with this like like bullshitting? Oh. 
All the time. All the so time. Okay. The challenge with scientific there's there's a an issue currently in the medical literature which I've written about, which we're currently I'm working on several projects and looking at this, which is that fraud is currently largely ignored. Um because within peer review, you know, peer review is the major mechanism by which we assess scientific research. You submit a, a paper to a journal. Um, the journal sends it to a group of your peers who are other people in the same field. They review it and they tell the editor their recommendations. Within that process, there is no mechanism by which to catch fraud. So if someone sends through a paper that is based on fake data, there is mm -hmm. not like a statistical or mechanistic process to detect that that data is fake. I think there's a there's a guy out of England, Ben Ben Goldacre, that was sort of a popularized this idea of pub, like openly um, publishing your trials. I, I can't remember the what, what he, I think it's like opentrial.com or something like that, where you where you say what you're going to do before you start, and then you have to report whatever data you have. And I'm paraphrasing this horribly. You probably know more about this than I do, but, but um, he did a great TED talk on this where he showed this thing called a funnel plot where you like you, you look at the data from across all the different studies that are looking at the same question. And then if multiple groups come up with the same answer, then you can believe it. At least at that point, you can say it's less like, less likely to be fraudulent. That's like one way of doing it. And then there's people like you who actually will go in there and look at that particular study, which, yeah, bless you for doing that. That is, uh, I've, I've tried to do that with medical residents and it's, it's so painful, um, and meticulous. And, uh, so, so yeah, if you, if you are, if you are willing to do that and it's fantastic work. So there are kind of two separate issues there. Ben Goldacre is big on what's called publication bias. And publication bias is where you have studies that are conducted, but then not published. And that's very easy to do if you don't register your trials. Mm -hmm. So what's now common um, is, it used to be very common in the 90s and noughties that particularly pharmaceutical companies, but also academics would run trials. Mm -hmm. um, they would never tell anyone they ran the trial. And if it was negative, they would just not publish it. And so a lot right. of the literature was unpublished and it wasn't oh. fraudulent. It just, you would never mm -hmm. know that these negative studies had been run and all of the studies were positive. Mm -hmm. And there are kind of all these mechanisms within academia to kind of incentivize people to only publish positive research. Like a lot of journals, mm -hmm really prefer positive studies um and that's that's a big thing so what you do to prevent that is you pre-register your trial as you said um you tell people what you're going to do before you do it and then if you don't publish it people can go back and go well look at all these unpublished trials the mm -hmm. key result in in our plot isn't giving us the right number but that's not fraud which is what i was talking about right 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 if the, the study is fraudulent though you're you know it's not, it's unlikely to be replicated unless you have like multiple organizations across the world all doing fraudulent work at the same time. Maybe that, that would be a much harder so, thing to do. But does that happen? Well, Has that happened? <laughs> there, firstly, well, in the ivermectin thing, yes, there were several organizations and they've committed they committed fraud in very similar ways. But the other issue is uh, there was recently a paper that showed this. Um, one fraudulent study can um, hugely change a meta-analysis result. So a meta-analysis, uh, when you aggregate yes. a number of different studies together and you use, there are a variety of statistical methods, but most yeah. of them are very vulnerable to a single um, really positive study. And if you commit yeah. fraud, you often exaggerate your results. So right. a, um, there was a study that found that on average, having a single fraudulent paper in a meta-analytic model exaggerated the result by at least 30%. Oh and that's God. what happened with that one retracted study, right? That one retracted study in ivermectin worked its way into a meta-analysis or, or at least one and totally threw off the data on that. Um, you know, the, the point that you made before about publishing positive studies makes so much sense to me. Because if I think about it, when a study comes out and it's negative, most, I would say more doctors at least, tend to not read it thoroughly. They just kind of be like, okay, that was negative. They take the take-home point and that's about it. If it's a positive study, those are the ones that really want, doctors want to read and like yeah. go through and be like, okay, 
is this like real? Is this like, but we kind of don't pay that much attention to the other one. So I could see why a publisher may not be as interested in, in doing that or sharing that. And they also get fewer clicks. I mean, the New England Journal of Medicine, if you look at the studies they publish, most of them find a benefit. And then if you want to go to the studies that are negative, you have to go down the line to the less popular journals that don't get as many clicks. It's it's literally the uh, the survivorship bias meme, the airplane with all the the, you know, the, the planes that were returning, they were seeing the gunfire and they thought, well, this is where we should reinforce the planes. But the ones that were shot down weren't returning. And so you actually needed the armor in the other places. It's the same thing with the the only publishing the ones that are successful or have a benefit. If you're just hiding away your ones that crashed and burned, then you're not you're not getting a full picture of what's actually going on. That is a fantastic point, Will, but you're going to have to take a step back and explain to Bobby what a meme is. <laughs> what is a meme? What is this Bobby, meme you speak of? Uh, so a meme <laughs> is... Uh, how do you explain? It's a... Uh, it's, it's, it's a term the, coined, I believe, by Richard Dawkins. Richard originally. Dawkins in The God Delusion, I believe. It's a it's the, it's an idea version of a gene passed on. So instead of it instead oh, yeah. of you calling it a okay. gene, it's called a meme. <clears throat> and the idea is that it kinda it jumps from person to person in their consciousness and kind of takes oh, a different shape, slightly altered every time, so on and so forth, and and kinda you know, I don't know if that's, that's a good actually pretty good. No, that's a pretty good explanation. Okay, all right. Just so you know, before you came on, Bobby was on. I had to explain to him that Christy Yamaguchi main wasn't your real name and why it wasn't your real name, how it was a combination of names. It was a thing. I just so so yes, we have to explain yeah. certain things to our it's a portman portmanteau <laughs> of my favorite figure skater of all time and one of my favorite southern rappers of all time. Nice, nice. <laughs> Oh, I thought it might be a I thought it might be a portmanteau of Christy Yamaguchi and a Pokemon, but you know that just, <laughs> that's uh, that's I, I actually that relative interest. That's not a bad guess, not a bad guess at all. So you know we've talked about this. The words have come up a couple times: RCT and meta analysis. These are different types of studies that are done. We hear about this a lot. We hear about these different studies. I think both in in scientific, obviously, literature and in and in the, the the medical world. But I think it's it's getting out there into the into the rest of the world with like you know, actual people, real people. And so, like in your mind, is there a hierarchy to different types of research studies? Can you explain a little bit of that, uh, at least between an RCT, what that is, and a meta analysis, and what you think? is perhaps more useful or in what situations they're more useful? So classically, if you search for like hierarchy of evidence, what you'll come across is a pyramid of evidence where they, for it, it's a bit weird because the pyramid doesn't actually make sense because the stuff on the bottom doesn't happen more often necessarily than the stuff on the top. So yeah, the idea right, of a yeah, pyramid yeah. is it's more of a weird. Ladder. It's, it's kind of a ladder. It's more of a ladder, I guess. But anyway, so generally speaking, what people will say is that kind of anecdotes and opinion is at the bottom, and then poorly controlled studies, such as like a case control study or study designs where there isn't a great deal of control, are next on that ladder. And then up uh, further, you've got randomized control trials where you've got a great deal of control over the participants and what you're doing. And then finally, at the very top, you've got meta-analyses of randomized control trials. And I think that that's not a great way to think about scientific evidence, personally. Um, there's a much better and slightly funnier um, pyramid of evidence created by a statistician on Twitter. I think it was Darren Daly who created it. And it's just... Um, at the bottom is bad research, poorly done research, and then at the top is well well thought through studies of any design. And I think that's a, a useful way to think about it, because really the, the thing about scientific evidence is that the studies that you, um, that, that any study design can be the most appropriate study design for a particular question. So if we're talking, the a lot of the, um, the design of how we interpret scientific evidence is, or at least medical evidence, is based on drugs and pharmaceuticals. And if you're talking about pharmaceuticals, then randomized trials are the gold standard because you can always test a pharmaceutical in a randomized trial. And if you're not testing in a randomized trial, it's questionable whether you're doing it right. Um, and 
then you look at meta-analyses of randomized trials because generally speaking you can't conduct a single randomized trial that's big enough to answer the question well so you look at all of the evidence across different RCTs. Now, that's not always the case. There are a few examples, such as the COVID-19 vaccine trials, where they were just big enough to answer the question. But most most of the time, when we're talking about like uh, one RCT, it's rare you'll have a randomized trial that's bigger than a couple of hundred people in each arm. But if we're talking about, say, what is the incidence, so the, the new number of new diagnoses of diabetes in high-income countries. A randomized trial is obviously not what you're looking for because that's not a testing one treatment against another. What you do is you do large epidemiological studies where you randomly sample people from the population and see whether they have been diagnosed with diabetes recently. And that's something that the CDC does. It's something that the various European bodies, the NHS, whatever, the French medical, uh, the French National Medical Service does. And so that's a different type of study. It's less controlled in many ways, but it is more appropriate for the question that you're asking. And that's really the point. Whenever you're looking at a study, I don't necessarily think that it's useful to say, well, this type of evidence is better. Um, I think it's more important to consider what is the question that the authors are trying to answer and is the study design that you're looking at appropriate to answer that question? It's a more difficult thing to do, but it's more useful. Yeah. So I think one of the challenges, like, so I deal with patients like face to face and you tell them about studies and so on. And, you know, it's, it's hard to get anything across because once you start talking about statistics and, um, you know, if they hear randomized, that may, they may interpret that as, Oh, it's just random. You know, that's, what does that mean? You know, randomized. And so it's really hard to get across, you know, how um, important it is to, wait for the science before doing something like starting a new medication, putting it out in your body, uh, like ivermectin, like wait for the data to come out. It's really, especially when people are, uh, you know, and they're, they're freaking out a little bit about what's happening around them. And, and, and then, you know, if you, you come into an office and the doctor starts talking to you about evidence and waiting for randomized trials, they just, they, 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 they can't really hear you. Um, and so, I, I just wonder if you have any advice uh, for the patients that might be listening um, or even the clinicians that might be listening on, you know, how to, how to better, to be better consumers of their healthcare uh, when they're, when they're, or, or to ask better questions of their physicians who are prescribing whatever it is for them. What, what are some good questions? Um, and, and how, 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 how do you approach it as a patient yourself when you go to the doctor? Oh man, I'm the worst patient. Um, <laughs> I can imagine because well, because someone... be right? Oh my, yeah, I'd, be, I'd be a little every time. I'd be, <laughs> I'd like, be nervous. Every single thing I'd have yeah. to. Be like, okay, let's talk about it. This is why right. I'm saying. Yeah, well, often I leave the doctor and I go to the Cochrane Collaborations. <laughs> That's right. Of That's right. Systematic That's review. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I try not to look things up in front of people anymore because it's a bit rude, but it's not. Um, <laughs> Wait, that's but, the that's the epidemiologist version of like me using WebMD whenever I go to see my <laughs> my practitioner, right? Yeah, except he actually does it accurately and yeah. and then and then yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. He can really come at you with like some, some serious uh, questions and. You know, I have to say I have a few patients that are scientists and um, 
they're it's they're lovely to work with to be honest it's been great it's not those are not my my problem folks it's the, the hardest folks are the people that you know are very impassioned and and um what's a right way with a, a pg way of saying this they're just very vocal um about their opinions about whatever it is and, and they want what they want and to say well, listen, the number needed to treat just doesn't make sense here. Or if you say, well, there's no randomized controlled trials, they're like, what are you talking about, man? I want my medical freedom. Is that. is what they want ivermectin? <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of times it's not even that. It's simple things like wanting antibiotics for you know, a runny nose they had for 15 minutes. You know, oh, my, I, had a, I have a stuffy nose for it started yesterday. I want, give me the big gun antibiotics. You know, I want you know, Cipro for my sinusitis. You're like, okay, I want Levaquin. You're like, well, where did you even hear that? And that's the flip these- side. That's the flip side of like, of, of the movement where like, you know, teaching people to advocate for themselves because there, yeah. there has been like a, a history in the past of like doctors not necessarily listening when people are speaking up about their, so like mm-hmm. you can absolutely take that to the extreme and where right. they're asking for things that will not treat whatever symptoms they have or think they have. So yeah, there's definitely a, a two sides of that coin for sure. No, That's a problem somewhat unique to the United States as well, I think, <laughs> what you're describing, because <laughs> the U.S. is one of I'm a sure. very small handful of countries that allows marketing of prescription medication direct yeah, to consumers. Yeah. No, so in crazy. Australia, people don't go to their doctor and ask for specific antibiotics. They might ask for antibiotics more broadly, but they won't go, I need this brand name because it will cure me straight away. Well, listen, yeah, so how do I immigrate to Australia and are you hiring? That's uh, a <laughs> when can it's I start? challenging? <laughs> no, like, as a doctor, you I think it's not that hard actually. I might have a chance right now. You couldn't, man, you couldn't leave the OC. You're so know, like, you're I so OC at this know. point. You're never, no, gonna... they have beaches there too. I hear. No, no we have excellent the, beaches. This point <laughs> though is really interesting because people have talked about it for years, like. Aren't you worried about medicine being taken over by AI at some point in the future? And I say no. And I'll tell you why. For one simple reason, it'll be too good. And like someone's going to go to their AI doctor, their robot doctor, and they're going to put in like their problem. And the robot doctor is going to say, no, you don't need antibiotics. And they're going to be like, no, no, I need my medical freedom. Fuck this robot. Give me (laughs) give me a human doctor. You know, that's what will happen. Like, it'll never work for that reason alone. So I, I feel and in a the lot future, they will also be able to fuck the robot like that will be like, <laughs> like we will have like the AI will have come that far uh, and we will have made medical advancements. So it's a, you know, well, still two birds. Well, then, then maybe the, maybe the, they would have some more influence if they were able to do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They'll actually listen to whoever that AI is. But uh, there actually is interesting. Uh, um, my, my, um, my mentor in medical school published a study. Uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but basically showing that doctors that were perceived as most um, satisfying to patients that had mm-hmm. the highest satisfaction scores, yeah, um, actually had the higher mortality and poorer outcomes. Oh, yeah, God. UC Davis. Yeah, yeah even when that. you adjusted for their for their comorbidities. So these are people that are equally sick. The doctors that were perceived as more pleasant or or the it was a no the patients with the higher satisfaction of their doctor visit ended up doing more poorly worse and and the reason the reason for that is they were getting tests they didn't need showing them things that they didn't need being exposed to procedures they may not need being exposed to medication that had side effects that they may not have needed and the people who actually were a little bit less happy overall with mm-hmm. their care did better. <laughs> that's the whole that's the whole uh, manifest destiny attitude of Americans seeping into uh, mm-hmm. parts of life that we are not experts in. We just want what we want. I mean, that's why we do so much shit that is bad for us. And and yeah. anyway, you know, is, oh, yeah. is because oh, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't matter as long as we're satisfied in the moment. That's all we give a shit about. Yeah, I was going to say, I would be interested to see if that study was repeated in like the EU where healthcare Mm -hmm. is paid for by the government and it's not, there's less demand for specific services. I suspect you would find that satisfaction was related to different factors. Yeah. Yeah, I think, 
I think you, you would find a difference there. I'm sure. Hopefully, it's it's not. It's, this move sounds more and more tantalizing now to go, and uh, it, it is. <laughs> you're, you're convincing me. Oh but I, I have, a, I have but, another follow up question to that. How, how do you, as an epidemiologist, when you're seeing a doctor, you know, do you do you? What are your? Maybe this would be interesting for for people listening to know. How do you? Are there clues you're looking for when you're talking to your doctor that tells you, hey, this is someone who I can trust or I can... Has done at least the research on this, has has read up on this medication or this treatment. I mean, so this is kind of... I didn't really answer your question before. Um, I just said that I'm a terrible patient. But I think it's (laughs) kind of related. (laughs) But yeah, because I think that personally, as a patient... um, I like doctors who are honest about uncertainty. Um, And that's the sort of physician that I find easiest to work with and to talk about my health. Because most questions in medicine are to some extent uncertain. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you may not benefit from any medication that you're prescribed because it's complex to understand exactly who will benefit from each medicine and how that works. We only have large trials, which give us the average benefit doesn't always translate to the individual experience. Or as I like to say, actually my favorite example of this kind of uh, point is acrylamide. Acrylamide is a chemical that uh, likely causes cancer and it is in everything. So it's in coffee, it's in olives, it's in prunes. It's it's caused by a reaction that happens when you cook carbohydrates and also when you cook fats sometimes. So it, you, there's a small amounts of acrylamide in like a steak as well. And the thing is that it causes cancer very, very rarely. So at the intake for a general human person, based on coffee and all the various things you eat, I once calculated that you would expect to see somewhere in the region of 10 cancers in California, in the whole state of California, every 10 years, roughly. 10 people who get cancer because of acrylamide. And it's almost impossible to remove from all these foods and drinks and things. So it's not a public health issue. It's a tiny number of people. But if you are one of those 10 people, you do not care about the statistics. The Population perspective means nothing to the individual. It is just something. It, it's how the research world works. Um, and I like a doctor is, is the most powerful uh, of all. Exactly. If you're one of the ten people who the bad thing happens to, you don't care that it's yeah, extremely rare. Yeah. You are just furious that it happened to you, and understandably right. furious that it happened to you. And I like to whenever I see a doctor i like to have someone who understands the uncertainty the reality of medicine in my opinion in you know that nothing is is a given and i also just like doctors who treat me like an adult and i think that that is i have to say Mm -hmm. something that i personally think is likely to be true of everybody no one likes to be talked down to or Mm -hmm. or um, patronized in any context and you also bring up like this point that goes back to, you know, uh, Corey earlier going in front of Congress and saying you know, that it was a miracle drug. Anytime a doctor refers to something as a miracle drug, I'm like, come on, stop. You know, that's not oh, the yeah. case. I mean, you know, there's no, there's no miracle drug. Isn't uh, ivermectin for its intended use pretty awesome? Like it's it's like for for what it was originally yes. developed for and its cost and its like availability in, in third world countries like underdeveloped nations and stuff for its intended use. I hear it's pretty I won't you say miraculous, but <laughs> it's it's like it's like Nobel Prize winning, right? Yeah, like it literally did win a Nobel Prize. The reason why it's so amazing is because it's quite effective, even at low doses, uh, which are very, very safe. So you can give. Prior to the pandemic, they were uh, mostly in the late noughties uh, and early noughties. Is that what we're calling them? Um, the <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say about the. I've never heard between... anybody call it the noughties before, so yeah, that's I that's it. a yeah. new one. I, I dig that. Oh, one. that's great. You need to get I on like TikTok. It, the noughties these days. The noughties and the noughties. Yeah. All right, <laughs> that's okay. yeah, it's the slang of the youth. <laughs> 
Uh, anyway, in that period, like 2005 to 2015, there were a lot of these mass drug administration programs. And what they would do is they'd give ivermectin to every single person in areas of a country because a sufficiently large mm-hmm. proportion of those people had parasitic infections, um, helminths, the, the type of you know uh, worms that ivermectin treats and you could give every single person one pill every three months or one pill every six months and it would cause very virtually no adverse events so no people would die because you were giving them pills and it would cure a reasonable proportion of them and so it's it's it is in some ways miraculous for that purpose you're right it just doesn't work for COVID 19 unfortunately yeah yeah, it's it's uh it's the never-ending search for dual applications for things so like Mm -hmm. uh whether it's a coffee enema it's like or or Mm -hmm. you know or some other like (laughs) stupid you know instagram that is the worst that is the worst example a coffee enema (laughs) Coffee already had so many good uses. I know, I know, but yeah. like, but we, 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 there's this, it's, it's like, you know, uh, the search for the Holy Grail or the, the fountain of youth or, you know, me being, I've been diabetic since I was nine years old. I'm type one. And, you know, there's tons of health books that say, if you just take, mm-hmm. you know, ridiculous amounts of cinnamon, your blood sugar will come down. Or apple like, cider vinegar, man. Apple come cider on. vinegar, some Bragg's yeah. apple cider Enema. vinegar and stuff. The, the number of, of, uh, of, what you know even if they have some kind of like small beneficial um you know like like small amount of of benefit uh usually it's for type 2 diabetes that that it's shown in study people just don't know what they're talking about first of all and second of all everybody's desperate for some kind of holistic version of what they think is a is a miracle cure yeah my my favorite example of that is um is Linus Pauling and vitamin C I'm sure you know a lot about that, but it was, uh, I mean, this is a guy who won the Nobel prize and basically ruined his entire, um, career over this mad search for, um, the effectiveness of vitamin C at curing literally everything. Um, but never really basically, but he, he basically started the whole vitamin, um, era where people take high doses of vitamins and, I think it was essentially proven to be totally total BS and large studies have shown that, you know, using high doses of vitamins is essentially useless and actually could be harmful. But, but Linus Pauling won the Nobel prize, like a really smart guy. Um, and even he got, you know, he didn't just win the Nobel Prize. He was one of the first people ever to win it twice. He won two. He had oh, two Nobel right. Prizes. That's we right. know very well now that there can be people who are really fucking smart at one yeah. thing, and it doesn't yeah. translate yeah. to other things, no, even no. if it's a similar field. You know, yeah. I want to go back to something though. Um, you know, we're talking a little bit about like patient preferences, about whether or not they want someone sort of patronizing or telling them what to do and telling them exactly how it should be, and be very concrete about it versus someone who kind of understands the nuances of what's going on and tries to express that, that things are not always clear. And, you know, in in our training, Bobby and I come from, even though we're ancient, come from a relatively newer form of of medicine where we are, we want the patient to be a part of the medical Mm -hmm. decision-making process. But Mm -hmm. I have found that that doesn't work for everybody. Some patients don't want that. And Bobby, I want to hear what you have to say about this too. And I think that translates to how people are buying the ivermectin study. Because, you know, if you listen to a doctor who knows what they're saying about COVID or knows what they're saying about treatment for it, we talk with some degree of uncertainty. We have to, if we're being Mm -hmm. honest, we have to be like, well, the studies do look good that the vaccines have worked for this reason, or the studies look good overall, that the masks work, but there is a little bit of, you know, uh, there's a little bit of nuance to all those things. And people, it creates like- People don't like nuance. People don't like nuance. nuance No, it doesn't work. someone to come in and say, masks don't work, don't wear them. They want people to say the vaccine is deadly, it's gonna kill you, don't take it. Because it's almost easier to understand that, I think, for some people. I mean, I'm not saying everyone, but Bobby, do you feel like in medicine, that you come across patients where they just want you to tell them what to do and they don't want to be a part of that decision-making process. Yeah. I think, I think that's the key for me is to, if you're, people don't care what you know, unless they know you care. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
that I that's kind of the benefit of family medicine. I, I it's not <laughs> like I just see these patients one time in the emergency room and never see them again, or an urgent care, or um, you know, a surgeon who might operate on you one time and then they'll never see you again. I get to have a relationship over time with somebody, so my influence can grow. So I have to be very careful about being, you know, a jerk to somebody and, and just dismissing their request just out of hand because I know that, you know, I want to be able to see that person again. And so, you know, you have to make these calculated decisions. Obviously, I try to, I try to, you know, be reasonable um, with the patients and explain to them why we're doing something or not something else. But yeah, most people do want to be involved. Um, and there are, there's, it's fewer now. Um, I think in places, uh, sounds like, like Australia or England, you can just kind of tell the patients, this is what we're doing, um, which would be nice. But I think that, you know, in, in modern day medicine in America, it's, it's, it's challenging. You know, people look at commercials, they want what they want from the commercials, they talk to their friends, so they trust more than their doctor. But I think a, a plug for family medicine, the, the reason, you know, I went into family medicine is because I knew that the relationship is the most powerful part of the equation. Once you get to know somebody and you've had that, that time with them, then, then you really do have influence. Um, and it's, that's really fun. So, um, yeah, that's I a think, good plug. Yeah, yeah. I think figuring out, like, it's so hard to know what kind of patient you have in front of you in one visit. It takes a long, it just takes multiple visits over a long time. So yeah, it's really hard to know for sure. Yeah. And it's a good plug. What you were describing earlier though, um, I just wanted to pick up on one point, which is yeah. you were talking about how it's much easier to be certain than uncertain. Yeah. And I think that's, it's often described as the bullshit asymmetry principle. Mm-hmm. It's much easier <laughs> to say things that are not true mm-hmm. with a great deal of certainty than yeah. to be appropriately uncertain about the advice you're giving. Yeah. There, there yeah. was a guy, um, what's his name? Yeah, Nate Silver. He, he wrote a book, so- Signal for the Noise, where he looked at pundits on TV who made predictions about what was going to happen either geopolitically. Um, and then, and then he found that the ones that were the loudest and on more, more channels and were carried by more news organizations were the most likely to be wrong. You were speaking of guys who were good at one thing and then failed miserably afterwards. Yeah. Thanks for bringing (laughs) Nate Silver up into this. Well, there, there you go. That's 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 more evidence of uh, of uh, what you were talking about before with that study where the most favorable uh, the ratings for doctors had the highest uh, mortality. Right. right. Or, right. Like, the, the Wait, what happened outcomes. with Nate Silver? I don't know that. I don't know what the prologue is. What happened to that? What happened to him? Uh, His model Gideon, failed. You want, Gideon, you want to take this? Yeah, uh, Gideon. Talk he, to Nate, Nate Silver has been a very loud voice on COVID nineteen, and he often right? says things with a great deal of certainty that are incorrect on Twitter. Yeah, Bobby hasn't really? been on the internet since MySpace, so he doesn't know these things. You're going to have to tell him this. Or wow, friends, I, I wouldn't say he's. I wouldn't say Nate is constantly incorrect. I would just say that he appears to have. A, wow minimal understanding of the epi- epidemiology which yeah. leads him to say things very confidently uh, that are lots incorrect. of confidence he uh, of confidence. he got yeah. gassed up by the the pop science crowd and mm. uh you know the, the same the same crowd that gassed up uh people like uh what's his name um the 10,000 hours dude Malcolm Gladwell oh, Gladwell uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah oh yeah. my god Malcolm Where, like, Gladwell they they <laughs> I could only imagine uh, <laughs> Wait, your is opinion of bad or good what's gas uh, mean uh so so okay <laughs> Uh, so uh basically like you know hype hyping you up into doing dumb stuff you know like your boys are standing around going yo man come on do it do it you know like egging you on and then like you know kind of filling your ego gassing you up a little bit and then you end up you know driving off the cliff of stupidity (laughs) you you end up jumping off a bridge into the water and breaking yeah exactly um that's like when i know yeah. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell is the reason I can't read pop science books anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. because oh the problem is once you start fact checking that stuff, you just you yeah. realize that it's all nonsense. He well, had, either like, it's wrong or it's just completely unsupported. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so I've been okay, doing listen. all this shit for ten thousand dollars for no reason. <laughs> 
it. Completely arbitrary number. Meaningless. I'm sorry. You're never going to be in the NBA, Bobby. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, man. <laughs> sorry, dude. <laughs> I mean, it was a brilliant. It was wasted. a brilliant. I. It was a. He's brilliant. I mean, at the marketing of it, there's a branding to that. Ten thousand yeah, hours sure. that just really stuck. And, and, and he really- had. He had some fun ideas that if they just stayed in the hypothesis, just like like you're just like kind of bullshitting in conversation about like the idea of stickiness and like the early adopters of something and kind of how like ideas spread. That's completely fine. Once you once you venture into other scientific fields that have like people that know what they're talking about that can easily dispel what your theories are, then it runs off the rails. You got Mm -hmm. off. Yeah. Kind of thing. He's a brilliant writer and he tells a fantastic story. The problem is those stories generally don't have facts to back them right, up. Right, right. Yeah. The thing is though, I would say nine out of ten books that you can buy, like at a you know, you know, you get like the um stores in an in an airport yeah, where they sell the, the oh, top yeah. ten Stay away popular from science books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, most of those books will lie to you. That's my advice. <laughs> I oh, I have a question. What's what's a good one that you would recommend? recommend that is uh thorough on the research oh man a good i ha- see i don't really read them anymore because every time i do i true, true, read a couple enough. of chapters and just throw it at the fucking wall <laughs> um the last one that i read was a book um oh, actually jen gunter's book if mm-hmm. you're interested in lots of facts about vaginas yeah great book yeah, I, I prefer to keep it a mystery. Accurate. In my opinion, like I, I, I am not interested <laughs> yeah. in a lot of facts about that. It's more like I like the magical idea of it, yeah. and you know, just kind of a little mystery. Well, just oh, there's a, a, there was a good one called "Pain, Pain and Prejudice" by a journalist in Australia. She wrote about um, endometriosis and women's experience of pain in the medical system. That's okay. another fact-based That's book. A good one, yeah. I've got I've got a couple for you. Okay. Um, my one of my and and. Uh, yeah, maybe we can get some responses here, a reaction. But I think Paul Offit is a fantastic author. O F F I T T, or and he wrote mm-hmm. this one called Bad Advice, which I thought was really good and Overkill, um, where he kind of reviews the evidence, but for the lay public about various things that are offered in the medical system, and that your doctor might offer you, and um, for you to understand whether or not it makes sense and see what the evidence is. Um, but he does it for the lay for the lay reader, so you'll understand it. But his name is Paul Offit. I think he's fantastic. I don't know if you've read any of his work, but um, I think he's great. And he's actually yeah, he he's generally the quite a reliable. Yeah, yeah, and he he actually wrote a chapter on talking to the media as a scientist, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's done a couple interviews about that, which is super interesting and. And you know we're just we're just like not great at at communicating like a Malcolm Gladwell or you know or someone on Fox News. Like, you just can't compete with those guys. So you know you can't. It's so hard to do. But yeah, it's why we don't. It, it's one of the many reasons why I don't recommend debates. You know, in that setting because yeah. you know, we're just not good at communicating that sort of thing. We're not designed for it. It's a rhetorical skill that. Most people who are great at at science don't necessarily have, or really should. I mean, it's why I voted for Doctor Oz. You know, yeah, it's, twice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, doctor. I'm not. I don't even live in his district. I just wrote him in yeah. uh, on well, all my ballots. Well, you know, speaking oh. of that, though, let's let's get back to one last thing before we let you leave, Gideon. What was the deal with RFK? What did he refer to you for? What was that about? Oh, um, and that could you is... kick his ass? <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. I used to I used to do um Krav Maga years ago in MMA, but that was a decade Hell ago yeah. when I was right. I before I started my PhD I did a lot more things and then I started and, doing And you're PhD Australian. And that full-time. gives you that gives you a, a few <laughs> like you yeah, can take like a couple more just, hits than the average You you American. live you live in, <laughs> in in one of the most hostile environments uh on the entire earth. Uh so uh, I feel is, like that hard to to a degree. That is a myth. Sydney is a beautiful city with very few poisonous. Well, we have the there is Giant the most poisonous venomous everywhere. spider in the world. The, the really? Sydney funnel oh, okay, web so is just the most that. Just, spider. you know, just just that, you know. It's, <laughs> Unless okay, you gotcha. go like 
like occasionally I go climbing outdoors in the mountains uh-huh. and we, we go up to the Blue Mountains and you, you have to be careful where you put your hands in the holds because sometimes there's a funnel web and you could, could get bitten. Aside from that, it's very rare to see a funnel okay. web around. Okay. Fair, sure. Okay. They're pretty big spiders. Um, they, and they live in holes that are in the ground covered by webs. So unless you really like go for it, it's pretty hard to get bitten. So speaking of dangerous creatures anyway. that live in dark holes, tell us about the RFK thing. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So yes. RFK, um, it was the ivermectin stuff. So the reason why I've been attacked publicly by various people is all the ivermectin stuff. I think I, I made it into his book briefly. I don't know if he referred to me by name, but it, this group of colleagues um, and these the stuff that we published proving that several of these studies had been faked, um, that was referenced as some sort of evil plot. People think, for some reason, people can't believe that um, as a scientist who's primarily funded by the Australian um, state and federal governments, I might find it problematic that there's fake research published. Oddly enough, um, a colleague and I did publish a study showing that one of the large vaccine studies on Sputnik um, had some issues, and no one, no one uh, ever shocker there. <laughs> yeah, but no one ever goes, "Oh, you must hate vaccines because you've proven that Sputnik is problematic." They just go, "Oh, you hate Ivan Russians." <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so that's why RFK doesn't like me. All right. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, you it's not a great thing, I think, if he likes you. All right. Um, <laughs> let's close up there. Uh, let's get a bunch of plugs in. Let's start getting... Please plug whatever you want to plug. Let's plug it. Um, well, the things that I'm currently doing is that I've got this... Uh, I, I'm writing a Substack. So if you like science... And all that sort of stuff. You can find me on Substack as Gideon MK Health Nerd. Um, you can also find me on Medium if you prefer Medium as a platform. I'm currently doing both, and I'm on Twitter. Sorry, X. It's mm. at GidMK, G-I-D-M-K. And I'm also on TikTok at GidMK Health Nerd. So basically, whichever platform you prefer, except for Instagram, because I don't want to go on Instagram. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Will Pool, aka Chrissy Yamaguchi Main, where can people find you? You can find me on uh, Twitter because I refuse to call it X. Um, uh, at the yes. Waffle House, T H E W A P P L E H O U S E. And you can also listen to my show, Jort Center. Um, it is not a show about uh, sports, it's about everything but basically. Uh, <laughs> it's just five long term friends talking about a little bit of everything. Uh, and I enjoy doing it. So come yeah. and follow, take a listen, Jort Center I, pod. I enjoyed listening to it. Um, Thank you so much. Bobby Sharyar. Bobby's real name is Sharyar, by the way. Yeah. Sharyar. Um, I'm not going to give you. I'm not, you know what? I'm not calling you Bobby anymore on the show. Sharyar is a cool ass name. Yeah, thank you. I've right. I was before. wondering why we were calling you Bobby when your screen name is Sharyar. <laughs> uh, Bob, Bob Sharyar. Yeah. Do you want to plug anything? Yeah. What do you have to plug, man? Um, I have a Friendster account that's still alive. <laughs> Into MySpace. No. Um, no. If it, yeah, I would just say you. Yeah, I think those books. I would. I would read if as a patient. I would read those two books. I think those are really good. Bad advice and uh, and overkill. Uh, I think those are two good books by Paul Offit, and um, I think he's a he's a really great uh, person to follow in the media as well. Um, if you want to look for someone who's got you know some real brains and and uh, is doing some media stuff to teach patients what, what's going on and what's what. So I would just do that. And then if he you really want to see me, you'd have to get really sick and come to the hospital. Uh, that's another way to do it in Orange County. I'd have to get on several flights as well. He's several worth it. Flights, yeah. He's a good doctor. <laughs> He's a good doctor. He's one of the people I turn to for, for help. Um, what's this rash, Bob? Um, anyways, uh, thank you all so much. It's such a blast having you all together. If you are interested, you can follow me at Twitter, if you like, at the House of Pod. And uh, I'm also on Blue Sky at that, that Cave MD. Um, but more importantly, leave a review uh, of the show. I will read them. This one comes from FireCop019. Maybe not all cops are bastards. Great content. This has become one of my favorite podcasts. It feels like having a conversation with a friend. Hey, it's me. Talking about those topics that we really wish we could just get better. 
sarcasm, humor, and discussion make this easy to listen to. Keep up the good work. You got it, fire cop. You keep fighting fires and arresting them or whatever it is that you do. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you to the team for help with production. You guys have been awesome. I love you. Whoa, like, whoa, but it's like wool and wool. No, no, no. It's wool. Will and a gong. It's the Australian wool version of Cheech and This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.